want to thank the Dean of Chapel for uh, giving me this opportunity to, uh, to preach. Um, I'm the speaker for this year at the Professors Who Preach um, cycle or uh, series, which begs the question, are there professors who can't preach? But I'm not going down that road. <laughs> I, um, I do pastor a little country church, and um, it's an interesting mix of folks. We have uh, people from the seminary, and we have people who are called river people, people who live along the river, country people. And uh, uh, they get along quite well. It's an incredibly strong church. Uh, for its size, it's really a pretty amazing church. Gives roughly 70 to 80% of its uh, annual budget to mission service. Uh, it's really, uh, really a good group of folks. Um, I, I want to tell you something briefly before I actually begin about the preaching. In, in order to do that, I need to take off my coat. Trust me, in a country church, you don't leave a coat on. So that's enough of that. Um, uh, I do not dumb down sermons. I, I think if you're going to serve a country church, you need to understand this. Uh, the people in your congregation are just as smart as the people anywhere in this country. Now, you may need to modify the vocabulary. I do that sometimes. I may explain words. Uh, I often give the same sermon. I used to do it more frequently. I don't go to the prison as often as I used to. But uh, when I give a sermon at the prison, at Blackburn Prison, which is part of the ministry our church is involved in, I give the same message I gave Sunday morning. Again, I might have to modify the vocabulary or explain words. And I do give it with more fervor because that's the expectation of prisoners. They want some uh, additional energy. Nonetheless, uh, it is the same message and it's quite frankly the same kind of message I'm going to give this morning. Now, I divide or in the holiness tradition, there were three styles that were often discussed in preaching. One was, of course, the exegetical sermon, which is strongly encouraged in this seminary. Another was the topical sermon, which in the holiness movement in the 1800s usually had to do with either abolition of slavery or, or uh, temperance. And that, that's where they tended to focus. Uh, the third style was called exhortation, which was a, a sermon that was meant to have a very personal feeling. It was meant to make people feel yeah, a little guilty, actually. Um, maybe a smidge ashamed. Because the point of it was to exhort them toward holy living. And that is the style I'm going to use today. And I'm going to do that by emphasizing the concept of pilgrimage. If you will, uh, bow your heads in prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable before you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of Jesus Christ. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, I, as I mentioned, want to uh, consider the concept of Christian pilgrimage with you. And uh, in order to do so, I'm going to discuss today and tomorrow some of the trips that I've taken, some of the journeys I've gone on, the pilgrimages. I've walked a lot of them, uh, uh, many of them, not all of them, but many of them with my wife, who's sitting right there. Wave your hand, Marceline Gale. Thank you. Um, uh, and... Um, I will bring up some of the particulars about those journeys tomorrow, but today I want to discuss the idea of Christian pilgrimage as a concept that is central to Protestant Christianity, even though we now tend to ignore it. 
I want to try to recall all of us to using this kind of language, to thinking of our lives as pilgrimages. In order to do so, I'm going to ask you, please, take a deep breath, find your safe space, uh, be calm, all right? Remember, I'm going to use this exhortation model. I want to start off with an honest look at our society and how Christians have been talking and acting over the past several weeks. You know, I really do. I mean, I really do. I understand people who claim that Hillary Clinton is utterly corrupt. She got very, very rich for doing very, very little. It certainly implies quid pro quo. And I understand people who claim that Donald Trump is an unsavory character. More than that, he's crass, he's manipulative, he's intimidating, he is seemingly lacking in compassion. I understand. And I understand that people have had some really strong feelings. I understand that people who are undocumented or have friends and family who are, are deeply concerned. I understand the rural people who voted overwhelmingly against what they perceive to be the arrogance of politicians on the East Coast and media moguls and entertainers on the West Coast. They were tired of being mocked perhaps uncertain about their own economic futures. I understand why some people now feel they're being marginalized. I understand why other people felt that political correctness had been marginalizing them for the last half decade. I understand the concern. I understand the bewilderment. I understand people feeling disconcerted. What I do not understand is fearfulness among Christians about all of this. And I mean that seriously. I don't understand it. By fear here, I'm not referring to uncertainty or confusion or even apprehension. I'm talking about a loss of perspective that arises when one believes reality is out of control. Or when one believes there's nobody who can bring about any effective change. Or even worse, when somebody thinks there's someone who can bring about effective change, they just won't do it because they can't be trusted to do so. That is the kind of fear to which the New Testament authors are referring. It is the kind of fear that is the precursor to despair. And I really don't understand how Christians can be fearful. Uh, let me rephrase that. I do understand how Christians can be fearful. I do not understand how Christians can legitimate their fearfulness how they can accept it, how they can relish it. And friends, that is exactly what has been done by people. In the streets, in the coffee shop conversations, on blogs, on Facebook, even in classrooms. Now other people, those of the world, they can feel self-satisfied in such feelings because it provides them a means of holding on to misconceptions and their threatened commitments. It is a way to resist cognitive dissonance. But Christians cannot and should not give in to fear. And there are three clear reasons. Number one, according to the Bible, you're supposed to release it. John's first letter, perfect love casts out fear. Or... Paul, as he's describing his own experience in 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, jars of clay, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God, not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, uh, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. To use what some people might call a truism, John and Paul appear to be saying, if you trust God, well then, you ought to trust God. I mean, if you really are a Christian, 
Is he not the person in whom you should have your faith? And let's be clear, faith in the Protestant tradition is not, it is not affirmation of doctrines. Now don't get me wrong, true faith is expressed in orthodox doctrine. Take lots of courses in the School of Theology and Formation, please. All right, but that is not what faith is. Faith in our tradition is faith in someone. It's trite, but it is true. Christians do not believe things about Jesus. They believe in Jesus. They put their trust in him, and trusting him should cast out fear. Here's the second reason why we should not be fearful. It indicates a lack of perspective on the very real suffering that is occurring in the world. Fearfulness, especially among Americans, just smacks of being spoiled. It really does. It demonstrates an incredible lack of perspective. All rhetoric aside, and there's been a lot of it over the last couple of weeks, and it continues. We are not in a war zone. Like our brothers and sisters in Syria, and I mean our Christian brothers and sisters in Syria. We are not facing ethnic cleansing like our Christian brothers and sisters in Iraq. We are not being smothered by the social fabric of the state as some of our brothers and sisters in parts of Western and Southern China. Now, if you have an abusive spouse or you live in a crime-ridden city neighborhood or you're faced with bigotry because of a racial minority status or you have been labeled a redneck because of your economic class and where you happen to live, I understand the serious apprehension. I recognize the need to not be a victim. But I cannot with any integrity say that fear is going to be of any help in addressing those concerns. And it certainly is going to be a distraction if you seek the eternal goal. And that leads to a third aspect of this. I don't understand the relishing of fearfulness by those who claim to walk with Christ because it is existentially pointless. Honest to goodness, just take a brief look at the world around you. Read just a little history. Take a, a glimpse at the natural world as you walk through. Any honest person is going to recognize that existence on this planet is awfully brief. It is a short, short sojourn. And attaching one's hope and meaning and purpose to the fleeting things of this world is a fool's errand. That's why Christians, even while rejoicing at the beauty of the earth and the pleasure of the family life and the simple happiness of a well-cooked meal or a pleasant walk, that's why we are never allowed to treat those things as anything more than what they are. They are expressions of passing pleasure of finite happiness. And let me make something absolutely clear even about those things. Those temporary goods have no true goodness to them unless they also are pointing to the eternal. Everything else is meaningless. Now, let me put the idea as simply, as clearly as I can. This world is not our home. We are passing through. Christians are, or at least they're supposed to be, pilgrims. That's why the scripture so often uses sojourning imagery. That's why the author of Hebrews draws figuratively on Abraham's journey, seeking a metaphor uh, more properly, is using an allegory of the journey through life. That's why Paul says, I'm pressing on. That's why Jesus declares himself to be the way. The implication quite clearly is there's somewhere to get. I want to exhort us 
to live the Christian life as a pilgrimage, even while we do actively serve the poor and fight for justice as a part of that pilgrim journey. But those things are not an end in themselves. Maybe a little historical perspective will help our consideration of our current situation. For most of the 19th century, there was a genuine theological tension among those who would eventually become known as evangelicals, those who came out of the Trans-Appalachian revivals, the Great Awakening in the US, what became the US, and the Wesley revivals in Britain, and then the Cane Ridge revivals, the Harrodsburg revivals in the early, early 1800s, the people who became evangelicals. That tension definitely played out in the Methodist movement. It was sometimes concealed by larger social and moral problems like slavery and the unseemly toleration of it by some believers, by the temperance movement, which was tied to the first wave of feminism and tied to the holiness movement proper. But there was another disagreement. It was a theological disagreement. And that has laid the groundwork for the failure of liberal denominations in the mid 20th century, including my own, and it has led to the exhaustion of the religious right a few decades after that. Through the 1800s, some evangelicals reached the conclusion that society could fully reflect divine intention. The American belief in progress merged with the Wesleyan concept of entire sanctification, and it ended up in what was called social perfectionism, the belief that proper political activities could mold the nation into something approximating the kingdom of God. Now, other evangelicals disagreed with that. It's a bit simplistic, I admit, in saying it was a clear bifurcation. There were varying degrees, there were efforts to hold the sides together, but the two approaches can be clearly discerned if you read the literature, and importantly, if you look in the hymnals, if you look at the words that are being sung by the different groups. Consider Charles Finney, a leading abolitionist an evangelical preacher, advocate for the doctrine of Christian perfection, and for what it's worth, the popularizer of what we call the altar call. He said this in Letters on Revival number 23. Laws, rewards, punishments, these things and such as these are the very heart of moral suasion, persuasion. Some are afraid to employ the government, lest it would be a departure from the system of moral persuasion. No, the great sin and utter shame of the church and of so many in ministry is in neglecting or refusing to speak out and act promptly and efficiently on the great questions of reform. How could they more directly grieve and quench the spirit of God than by such a course? No wonder that such a ministry should look coldly on revivals. Those other people, though, the ones that are in the Sacred Harp and the Southern Harmony, uh, are using those books, and these are people who, generally speaking, would be the working class and the poor, both, by the way, white and black uh, in American history, there were numerous uh, African-American groups associated with this uh, singing style. Uh, these folks, they're willing to help their neighbors. They're unquestionably trying to better themselves and provide for their families through education and industriousness, but they see the world as a transitory place. In the hymns, it most often took the form of songs about pilgrimage being a pilgrim. They not infrequently uh, drew from the imagery of John Bunyan or, a, or another earlier work called Piers Plowman. Here are just a couple examples. Oh, who will come and go with me? I'm bound for the promised land. Another, 
When the dreams of life are fled, when its wasted lamps are dead, when its cold oblivion shade, beauty, fame, and wealth are laid, where immortal spirits reign, there may we meet again. One more. Dark and thorny is the desert which the, through which the pilgrims make their way, but beyond this veil of sorrows lie fields of endless, endless day. One-third to one-half. It's an eyeball estimate, but one-third to one-half of the hymns in these two books have direct reference to living a pilgrim life or to getting to the promised land. Direct references. The Methodist hymnal at the turn of the century had a whole section in its index on living as a pilgrim or on pilgrimage, but the number of hymns had started to shorten. In the current United Methodist hymnal, there's really relatively little about it, and the references to being a pilgrim are often associated with the holiday celebration of Thanksgiving. The idea seems to have dropped out. What happened? Well, when people become acceptable denominationalists, when they start to live a comfortable life, the last thing they want to talk about is being a pilgrim. Because being a pilgrim isn't always comfortable. Being a pilgrim doesn't mean you always get what you want. Being a pilgrim means you have to move on and give up things that are hindering, sometimes even things that are, at least on the surface, very, very pleasant. We need to find balance again. That's what Wesley did. That's what the early evangelicals had. Understand, I am not advocating this morning for the abandonment of efforts to improve society. I'm not going to deny we can better ourselves with technology and medicine and public health. I pastor a church with an outhouse. It would be great to have a flush toilet. All right? I am not opposed to progress. I'm opposed to misunderstanding what it really is. I'm opposed to not recognizing that some kind of sense of proportion about the things we do is really necessary. I'm pushing very hard that we stop living fearfully and accept our call as pilgrims. The other side of the tension, the dialectic, the being a pilgrim, has been ignored increasingly, and that is to our spiritual peril. I want everybody in here to fight injustice. Of course I do. You want to organize politically if you think you can do it in a suitable way and maintain Christian dignity? By all means, do. You think you can coordinate efforts with like-minded people who want to care for the forgotten? I hope you do. But do not be so arrogant. And that's the word. Do not be so arrogant as to believe that your earthly efforts, even for noble causes, are going to be the paving stones of some kind of earthly street of gold. It's not going to happen. You'll just become disillusioned and maybe spiritually broken. Eight years ago, I was walking the pilgrimage across northern Spain, my first journey on the Camino de Santiago, and I met some Germans. This is uh, eight, really nine years ago. It's before uh, Barack Obama was elected president. And some of the Germans, uh, having a cup of coffee, uh, some of the Germans uh, had been to the Brandenburg Gate when Obama was there. And their entire demeanor shifted and all of a sudden, they started talking about him like he was a messiah. Folks, he wasn't. 
Was he a good president? Maybe. Was he a bad president? You decide. But he was not a Messiah. Nor was he the Antichrist. Similarly, right now, Donald Trump is neither a savior nor a devil. Quite frankly, if you think he's the former a savior, then you're an idolater. If you think he is the latter, then you live a sheltered life. And more importantly, more importantly, you're using demonic language about somebody, which means you're not taking seriously the reality of evil and of hell. Trump is a man. He soon may be a very, very powerful man. He may be a man who will do better or worse. I got my opinion, but he's only a man. He's not angelic. He is not demonic. Now, by all means, whether you're a Trumper or an Obamaite, whether you're like Clinton or Sanders or Carson or Kasich, or you just didn't care for any of them too awful much, that's my category. Uh, <laughs> by all means, by all means, try to make the world a better place just like Daniel did in Babylon, but never forget this world is not your home, at least if you follow Christ. So balance your Christian life. When you're doing good works, when you're involved in politics or social change, Recognize you're a pilgrim. To quote the Gaithers, kings and kingdoms will pass away. And that includes this one. With the humility of a sojourner, walk the land. With the determination of one who knows where he or she is headed, turn toward heaven. Now allow me, if you will, to sound just a little academic for a moment. Pilgrimage is not a word that should be applied to just any long journey. A tourist is not a pilgrim, a wanderer is not a pilgrim, a business traveler is not a pilgrim, a discoverer or an explorer is not a pilgrim. A pilgrim is someone who is journeying to get to a specific place and is doing so to garner spiritual benefit. It is one who keeps the goal always before his or her eyes and that goal guides his or her way. I don't blame these people for saying it. But the second time I was on the Camino de Santiago, I was taking a different route, um, this particular pass called the Primitive Way, and it's through mountains, like the mountains in East Kentucky. Not as big as the mountains in North Carolina, but mountains. In fact, while we're driving up there, my wife went with me that time, she looks over at the snow caps, this is in May, she goes, we're, we're not going up there, are we? And I go, no, 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 no. Well, we weren't in the snow, but trust me, you could see it from where we were. We're, we're walking through there for a couple of weeks. And to be blunt, uh, my wife was episodically in great pain due to a hip injury. And at the very end, or almost to the end, about three or four days out, she's in pretty severe pain. And, and somebody says to us, well, I suppose it's the journey that counts not so much reaching the destination. My wife's eyes get this big. I gotta tell you folks, she didn't know what she was talking about. It most certainly, it most certainly is getting to the destination. That's precisely the point. It's not just the journey. The journey does allow you to shed the unnecessary. The journey creates a quiet time by silencing the falsely urgent. The journey is a wonderful opportunity to meet new people, enjoy new places, taste new foods, see new expressions of the natural world. But friend, the point of a pilgrimage is to get somewhere, and it's to get to a specific somewhere. And it's supposed to be that way with your life. Mine too. You're supposed to be getting somewhere. You should be able to look at where you've been, where you are, and where you're going, and you should be able to discern 
that you are more Christ-like today than you were yesterday and that you will be more Christ-like tomorrow than you are today. And this is most assuredly not some kind of quest for self-definition or a way to discover oneself. That is the self-pitying language of the privileged West or maybe the detached language of Eastern philosophies. It is not some kind of grand self-analysis or well-funded trek through life in which one eats and loves and occasionally prays. It is wanting to get closer and closer to God, both in relationship and in imitation of his life. How does one reclaim the role of pilgrim? It's really pretty simple. It really is. The Christian life as pilgrimage is just a life of not resisting God's grace as we move forward toward the goal. The telos of life is God. The telos of life is being in heaven with God. It's heaven or it's nothing. That's how a Christian should think. No substitute will do. It requires we leave behind what's not necessary and we press on toward what is ahead. It means we put everything, good and bad, pleasure and pain, into proper perspective. It's trusting God and believing he can get us there. Allow me to use academic language for the second and last time today. A pilgrimage is teleological. It is not consequentialist, but it is teleological. It is an active resignation to the divine goal. It's teleological. But unlike consequentialist thought, that's utilitarianism or hedonism, in which the end justifies the means, in a pilgrimage, the end conditions the means. The end, the goal, sets the path. The place toward which we aim shapes how we get there. The end point determines the best route to, fo route to follow. And if by chance you go astray along the way, if you start to get lost, release yourself again to the Holy Spirit and he will help you get reoriented, assuming you're willing to resign yourself to him. Resign yourself again to the ultimate telos. Understand this. You and I are not trying to get back to Eden. We are trying to get to heaven, to the kingdom of God, and we're trusting Christ to get us there, but we have to keep walking in the way that he has laid before us. As, as we prepare to close for today and move toward the sacrament, consider, if you would, that passage that was read from Hebrews. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in a land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same, pro of same promise. Now listen to this. For he was looking for the city which has foundations. The goal he sought was what conditioned how he got to the place he sought. He was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham was a warrior. He was a tribal leader. He was the founder of a new religion, but he was also a pilgrim. And the writer of Hebrews, when he draws that analogy, he wants his readers to be pilgrims. Paul is telling us, be a pilgrim. John is telling us, be a pilgrim. Jesus is telling us, be a pilgrim when he says he is the way. So all this takes me back to how we started. The only means by which one can truly live the courageous Christian life, live without fear, is to be a pilgrim. I want to end today by singing 
just a verse or two out of another sacred or a shape note song. It's actually not out of the sacred harp. It's out of another one of the sacred of the shape note books. Oh, what poor despised company of travelers are these that walk in yonder narrow way and through the thorny maze. And why shun they the pleasant path that worldlings love so well? Because that is the road to death, the open road to hell. Oh, I'd rather be the least of them that are the Lord's alone than wear a royal diadem and sit upon a throne. But some of these seem poor distressed and lack in daily bread. Still they a boundless wealth possess and with heavenly manna fed. So why keep they this narrow road, this rugged thorny maze? That's the way their leader trod, and they love and keep his ways. Oh, I'd rather be the least of them that are the Lord's alone than wear a royal diadem and sit upon a throne. As you prepare for the sacrament today, please understand what it really is. It's food for a journey. And it's a journey that's supposed to be taking you someplace into the very eternal presence of God. 